From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, OSU student Emily Tara, the John Aller investigative reporter for The Lantern, talks to OSU Senior Director of Learning Technology, Michael Hoffer. Then, OSU Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies student, Krista Benson, learns about the end of men and the rise of women from journalist Hannah Rosen. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Emily Tara, and I'm here from The Lantern at Ohio State with Writer's Talk, and today we're talking to Michael Hoffer about technology at Ohio State and the Digital First Initiative. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. First of all, what is the Digital First Initiative? So Digital First Initiative is something that started, well, almost a year ago, and that really we made public about three months ago. It started with a trip to Apple's headquarters in Cupertino. When I first got here to Ohio State, you know, iPads were still new and, and what are these things and how are they going to affect education? And we took a group of senior leadership and faculty out to Apple to sort of understand what their vision for education was. And we came back with a lot of momentum and we put together a Digital First program. So the tagline for Digital First is enriching teaching, learning, and research. That means a lot of things. And most importantly, though, it means how are we enhancing our teaching and learning to make an exceptional student experience. Did you get to go to the Apple headquarters? Yes. What was that like? So it was really cool, obviously, right? And very secretive as well. So you get bussed in and you go to one room and you're only allowed to stay in that one room and then they bust you out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So why Apple? Students are coming with Apple in droves. In fact, just yesterday, we looked at a snapshot of our network traffic and there were 10,000 devices connected to a portion of our network and over 65% of them were Apple. And that includes iPhones and iPods and iPads and computers and all of the things that Apple makes now. And we feel that Apple's making a huge investment in K through 12 as well as more and more school districts move to digital textbooks. So we really want to be out in front of this thing when those students start to show up here in the next two to four years. How is that going to impact Ohio State and our computer labs? And are we going to be switching completely over to the Mac? You really probably won't see that much difference. We still think there's a need for both Windows and Apple. In fact, we work with Google too, and we work with Microsoft, and we work with Adele and all the other folks as well. Apple's just a little bit more committed to how we're changing and transforming higher education. So in our computer labs, I think what you'll see is more of a 50-50 split, where before we may have had all Windows and a couple Macs. In terms of education, and you will see more things online through things like iTunes U or courses specifically developed for an iPad. Is it costing Ohio State more to bring in these new products and these new computers? So our costs are actually remain the same. And in fact, through restructuring and better budget management and working with our vendors more stringently, we've asked actually been able to improve three or four spaces on campus this summer with no additional funds, with just repurposing money. We hope our goal is to reduce the cost of an education to our students. I'll give you a great example. Chemistry textbook, brand new. Everybody has to take Gen Chem, right? Or one of the chemistry courses is $220 over in the bookstore. The digital version on the iPad is 94 Okay, so big difference. Big difference, right? right? You still have to buy the iPad, right? And that costs between four and six hundred dollars, depending. Can you on which only one get you the buy. digital book on the iPad or no, any you, tablet any device? Any reader or okay. any of your computer as well. But we also talk about things that students haven't thought about where we could add value. If you have a course that you need to buy a graphing calculator for, buy the $75 graphing calculator or the $2 app on your iPad or a clicker, right? A lot of classes require you to have a a clicker device. Do you spend the $35 for the clicker or do you spend 
the $3 for the iPad version of that. So we really are trying to show value. And while the cost of the iPad we know is expensive, we think that there's value to the student over the course of their career here at Ohio State. Are there student discounts? There are. So if you go to Wired Out, which is the campus computer store, or the Wexner Center, which sells Apple products as well, you could get Apple products on this campus cheaper than anywhere in the country. Anywhere from a 2 to 12% discount, depending on the product. So how else are you trying to implement more technology into the classroom? One of the big things we've been focusing on is the idea of the flipped classroom, where instead of going into class and you sitting there and a faculty member is lecturing to you for an hour and a half, which we know you we, you don't like right. as students, <laughs> we are l- working with faculty to put those lecture materials online at the short modules, three to five minute videos, and then you watch those videos outside of class. And then the hands-on stuff, the homework that you're doing outside where you want to have collaboration with your peers, you want to have collaboration with the faculty member, you're doing that in the classroom. Or you're doing experiential learning or gaming in the classroom where you're not just sitting there as a passive learner. You're actually participating in your learning. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Guest interviewer today is Lantern reporter Emily Tara talking to OSU Senior Director of Learning Technology, Michael Hoffer, about the Digital First Initiative. More information can be found on our website at www.writerstalk.org. So have you seen a lot of teachers pick this up and start doing it? We have seen a tremendous amount of demand. In fact, more so than we know what to do with at this point. We've, in the two months that we started Digital First, we'd have, we've had close to 200 faculty contacts. 200 individual faculty members have come to us with some sort of question around Digital First. We have right now, I believe, seven courses on iTunes U, and we only expect that to grow. What about the teachers that maybe aren't so tech savvy, but want to try to do this? Do you guys provide support or maybe classes for them? We have seminars that run continually throughout the month, and they can find those on the Digital Union website. We have uh, boot camps, a series of four boot camps that we're running over the course of the year, where boot camp is will take 12 to 15 faculty members to a Apple headquarters in Chicago or an Apple headquarters in Cupertino or a Dell or a Google, whoever else wants to play with us, and help them develop materials for their course. We also have about nine individuals right now, we're bringing some more folks on, that you can request a consult with, and as a faculty member, they'll come to you or you come to them and we'll figure out how to integrate technology into your teaching and learning. Okay, cool. So how about the difference between maybe using this in a science classroom or an English classroom? Right. So there's uh, there's so many differences. And, and I think in the sciences, we have so many different requirements and so many things that they have to do with labs and wet labs. And we're looking at how we take those lab experiments and those handouts and put them online. In writing and in English, we're making some inroads with Scott DeWitt and his creative writing series and how that material is delivered. So I don't know if the iPad changes the writing process or the online changes the writing process. I think it allows you to collaborate more. But I also think it gives you as a student the ability to publish your work. So when we teach things like copyright and creative commons, we're actually giving you an avenue where you have to apply that. You don't learn about creative commons through reading about it. You don't learn about copyright by reading about it. You learn about it by doing it and publishing your work online. Where are you thinking that students will be publishing So I think we have two options, either to iTunes or to a Google platform. How did this get out to teachers? Yeah, we did a lot of work with faculty to sort of get 
their opinion on where they wanted to go with this. We did a lot of work with students. We have a student advisory group as well. And then we formed the university advisory team that's made up of university leadership at the provost and vice provost and CFO level. We formed an advisory team that's made up of administrative leadership. So like some people from athletics, some people from student life, some people from the chief information officer's office. Then we made up our faculty community and our student community and we brought them all together and said, hey, this is what we're thinking. This is what the data shows that we think a lot of students are coming with more and more mobile devices and we need to deliver our education to that mobile learner in that mobile world. Okay. And so we did a lot of announcements. We did a video series. We did a press release. We did the whole gamut of, you know, how you announce an initiative at Ohio State. So what are you hearing from the students that are actually getting to take part in this? Are they liking it or is it overwhelming? We were featured on ESPN's Game Day, our chemistry course, and there's about 600 students in there. And overwhelmingly, as one example, they were really, really excited about this. When you see the video from that, and it's on our Digital First website, there's about 300 students in McPherson, and I'd say 95% of them have their laptop, they have it open, they're responding to questions that the faculty member is putting up on the screen through the their device and the faculty member is in the audience teaching from his iPad, right? So he's sitting down with students and working through things with individual groups, which is really hard in a, a group of 300. So far, it's been positive. I think we have a lot of work to do with students, though. I think there's a gap where students are consumers of technology and they know how to use these devices to consume technology, but they don't necessarily know how to use them for educational purposes. And we have a program that we're working on right now, which will be the next part of our promotions that are student-created pieces for other students to say, oh, that's what I could do with something like Evernote. Oh, that's why I should get a digital textbook, you know, to start of help the rest of the student population say, oh, I get it now. What would you say to people that are still kind of anti-technology? They like their books. They like their blackboard, paper and pencil. Is there a way to implement both of them? Or do you feel that it's really beneficial just to go digital? I think we have both. And in somewhere like Ohio State, we have such a wide range of people. But I say to them, and I say this all the time, I say, close your eyes and envision that we are in 2017 and that the freshmen we have today are graduating and the newest freshman class is arriving. Do you think they come with less technology than today or more? And everyone says more. <laughs> and so if they're going to say more and students are going to come with more, we have to be ready today for tomorrow. We can't continue to catch up or be on the same cycle as students. We have to try to be ahead. Going forward, how do you guys envision this morphing and changing since it is so new and it was just born a year ago? And like you said, three months ago, it came out to the public. I think it's also new. I, I mean, I think one of the things we learned when we went out to Apple is 90% of the money they make are from things that weren't invented five years ago. So when we think about iPhone as such a commonplace device, we talk about iPads as we've always had them. We haven't. We haven't only had them for a couple years, actually. So I really think that it's being out in front of the wave instead of behind it. How we do it, I think it's more resources. We have a commitment from the provost and the president that this is the direction we need to go, and Ohio State needs to be a leader in this. And I think we need to prepare our students for a workforce that's going to expect this. So if you're a nurse and you're here learning about nursing and you're going through our world-class nursing program and you've never touched a mobile device and you get to the hospital and everything's on an iPad, you're not prepared the way you should be. And it's our job to prepare you guys for the future. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thanks for having me. And this has been Emily Tarr from The Lantern on Writer's Talk. Keep writing. That was OSU student Emily Tara talking to OSU Senior Director of Learning Technologies, Michael Hoffer, 
about the OSU Digital First Initiative. More information can be found on our website at www.writerstalk.org. Now, OSU student Krista Benson learns about The End of Men and the Rise of Women from author Hannah Rosen, who has recently published a book of the same title. Hannah Rosen is the co-founder of X, website focusing on women and women's issues associated with Slate, and an editor at the Atlantic Monthly. She's also the author of the 2007 book, God's Harvard, a Christian College on a Mission to Save America, and has written for the Washington Post, the New Yorker, GQ, after beginning her career as a staff writer for the New Republic. Rosen has also appeared on The Daily Show and The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. On September 15th, she released her book, The End of Men and the Rise of Women, based on her controversial 2010 article in The Atlantic. Thank you for joining us today, Hannah, and welcome. My pleasure. Now, I know that the title of your Atlantic article, The End of Men, was not your idea. I believe your editor created it. So why did you maintain a version of it for this book? I maintain the exact same thing, not a version of it. A version of it would have been to put a question mark there, right? That's what a lot of people suggested. Blog culture being as it is, there had been two years between my original story and my book, And it is a very memorable phrase, and it's a few short words, and it had become attached to this argument. So it became almost an adjective in the culture, like, this is an end-of-men story, or this is an end-of-men argument I'm making, or something like that. It was very hard to ditch it for that reason. And then the more sort of proactive reason I kept it is because I appreciate about it that it evokes an instant emotional response as opposed to just a cerebral response. I know that sounds esoteric, but that's something I used to hate about it at first because some people were very rageful, but it's something that I've come to like about it because I think it brings up something for a lot of different people and kind of launches them into the argument almost immediately in an emotional way. And I think that makes for more interesting and active discussion. You know, that's the reason why I've not come to regret keeping it, I should say. Related to that, your article and the book have stirred up a fair amount of controversy. What have you found most surprising about some of the reactions? One thing overall, now that I've had, it's been out for about a month and a half, and I've had a whole range of reactions. One thing that surprised me is that the women react more negatively than the men, at least the ones who talk to me and call into my radio shows. So you would expect it to be the opposite just because the title is so on its face insulting to men, but it's not that way. So the men seem to think about it, or the men who call in seem to be people who have lived some version of it, or maybe out of work, or maybe stay-at-home dads, or you get a lot of men kind of mulling this topic. Topic, whereas the women really resist the idea that this reflects their daily experience. Interesting. Do you see a common theme of where that resistance comes from? Yeah, and I think it comes from the fact that many women, as they go about their day-to-day lives, don't feel like, oh, I'm in charge. They feel like it might be aspirational, but they don't feel like in their workplace, in their life, or in their relationship, they don't necessarily feel emotionally that reflects their reality. You've said, and this might as well be related, that you don't think this book is like a feminist success story or a feminist manifesto. Why do you say that? Because you actually say that in the book. Because it's not. I mean, because I'm a reporter. So even though the book has this very strong title, it's not ideological. I was taking stock of kind of trends 
friends that I saw at the time and putting them together in a way that I thought was interesting. But, you know, I have like a 20 year career before this book. So I feel like I can honestly say that as a writer in general, I'm much more of a reporter than I am, say, an essayist or a columnist. My general approach is I enter a world, I report about that world. And the pleasure of writing this book for me, as opposed to the original article, was that in the book, I got to follow certain couples or go into certain towns or talk to certain women in great depth and do surveys. And it's the reporting part which turns me on more than the ideological part. So that's what the story is for me personally. And then I think in terms of the book, the reason it's not a feminist manifesto is because you see in a lot of the couples I described that this is not positive. It's a negative thing in a lot of cases where you have women, say, raising families alone, a lot more single mothers. There's a lot of ways that the end of men and the rise of women is not a positive phenomenon. And very obviously so if you read the couples in the book. That's another reason it's not feminist manifesto. So do you see this book as being a part of kind of a larger conversation, even if it wasn't written from a feminist perspective, because you were writing as a reporter? Do you think it's a part of the conversation of feminist examinations of the economy, or does it play a totally different role for you? No, I think it is. It sounds a little contradictory, but I think it exists in a feminist moment. And even if you look at the cover of the book and it's like yellow pinkness, again, it's not what I intended, but it almost looks like a road sign. There was a moment when we were thinking about the feminine mystique, and now this is a moment where we're mulling over the end of men. So you could draw a kind of history of feminism in which this book would exist somewhere along that timeline. It's just the book itself is not straightforwardly like three cheers for women we want. That's all I mean by that. But yes, I think it definitely exists in a kind of moment in feminist history for sure. All of the couples were heterosexual couples. Both transgender women in any kind of a relationship and women in relationships with other women face really different economic realities, especially in this recession. How do you see this economic and power dynamic that you examine playing out for women who are transgender or who are partnered with women? You know, this is like my next phase of research because I realized in writing this book I was only thinking about men versus women, and so the gay question has come up a lot, or the transgendered question, or kind of what if you're not just like a woman and a man in a relationship? Now, there's obvious answers to that, which is there are obviously kind of dominant, less dominant members of every relationship that you can imagine, and sort of how those roles change that's a universal phenomenon among two people who are together. But I don't know. I mean, I just haven't thought about that. And I didn't think about it in the book. And I guess I have to think about it. What does this mean if you're two women in a relationship or have a completely different structured family, which is probably socially more acceptable these days, but in terms of economic realities is very hard to sustain. It's not even just transgendered and gay couples, but even take like communities of women who are raising children together or something. There's lots of different arrangements that people have that are affected in lots of different ways by this. But yeah, I was focusing mostly on men and women. That was one of the things I noticed because there's been so much kind of conversation about the ways in which the family as kind of a core concept, there's been an expansion of that concept in our society. And I would be interested in seeing how this applied because it seems in some ways that this is reflective of a particular set of family, but that there's a a larger conversation happening that could query who that applies to. Right. Although I do think these conversations are totally related because I have written a lot about the changing family and other concepts. And here's how I think it's related. One of the frustrations I've come across in this is that we basically have no easy way of talking about or 
thinking about or in policy terms, kind of helping a family that isn't married, whoever they are. I think about this in terms of single mothers. If you have a woman and a man who are not married and there's a kid involved, and this is an increasingly common situation, and the laws that we use to change this probably end up affecting other kinds of couples, we don't consider them a family. It's a really big problem in America. We don't give them any social services as a family, which in many other countries they do. We don't psychologically or culturally think of them as a family, and that's a real problem. We are exacerbating situations for children unintentionally by doing that, by just not considering these three people who live under one roof as a family. So that's something I thought about a lot when people ask me, you know, well, you didn't have any policy recommendations in this book. I think, well, look, one obvious one would be we have to start in America helping these families that are sort of stitched together by something other than the traditional glue to stay together and help each other. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest interviewer Krista Benson talking to journalist Hannah Rosen, author of the new book, The End of Men and the Rise of Women. More information about my guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. A lot of the impact that I saw kind of staying implicit in this book was actually the impact not as much on men, but on children. How do you think this is going to carry forward for them? In what ways is this going to change children's concepts of power, but also the ways that they see the world? I think in some really good ways and in some potentially less good ways. The good ways to me are, if I think about my own children, I have three children, I have two sons and one daughter. If we were to move towards a world where we thought less about men are like this and women are like this, we could even go through that middle phase of thinking there are more traditionally masculine qualities and more traditionally feminine qualities, whatever that means, and anybody can embody any of those qualities. And so if you think about if my son decides when he is dating someone or engaged to someone or whatever, that he doesn't want to work full-time. He wants to work four days a week. He seems to me like a maker kind of guy. He's going to be making his own crazy projects like all through his life, right? And so if he decides he wants to do that three days a week and the other two days pick up his kids or whatever, nobody should pass him in the park and think, what's wrong with that guy? Does that guy not have a job? We shouldn't even think about it or write a story about it or write a book about it or anything. It should just be like a completely normal, acceptable way of being in this world. And I think the equivalent for women has to do with kind of dominance and aggression. We still as a culture, and many studies back this up, have a hard time with women who are straightforwardly aggressive or dominant. That's a big problem for women. Or women who, like Marissa Mayer, who was the CEO of Yahoo, who chose not to take maternity leave. For me, the interesting question was not whether or not she's a role model, like she can do whatever she wants. Why do we care and why do we need a judge her? So that's what it is for women. If my daughter chooses to be a person who is straightforwardly aggressive for one reason or not, so what? She can be that person. So it's really about opening opportunities and choices for the next generation. Now, how is this bad? Because a lot fewer people are getting married or raising children together, and that's bad. I mean, another way in which this is not a feminist manifesto is the end of men is not good. You don't want men to move into obsolescence because I think people need each other ultimately, not just to raise children, but because people need each other in general. And so you want them to grow together and not to grow apart. So if you have like an increasing number of families that are not coming together and are coming apart, that's not good. And those children will suffer and the boys will suffer especially because the women are the ones kind of holding everything together and they will tend to invest in their daughters. That's just natural and that's just how it's working out. Um, Then you'll just have like boys falling further and further behind, and that's not good. 
for me, a lot of this actually, and admittedly, I'm reading this from the point of view of a feminist academic. It's a different point of view than the one you're writing from. I read this as being less the end of men and more the end of associating masculinity with men. Is it possible that a lot of the negatives you're talking about are not necessarily inevitable to the end of the assumptive association with masculinity and men? It's not forever. It's our adjustment period. Do you think that that's possible? I totally love that interpretation, and I think that's really good. And funny, it's like (laughs) I had no idea that the book would get the kind of reaction because you never necessarily know. So I've been schooled a lot in talking about this. Books are imperfect, and there's a lot of things that if I'd already had this conversation, I would have been much more explicit about. One is the tone. Is this good or bad? It's hard to tell from the way I wrote the book whether I think it's good or bad. The second is being more explicit about what you just said. Am I talking about the end of a certain kind of patriarchal privilege? or a certain type of masculinity or the association with a certain type of masculinity only with men. And I think I'm talking about all of those things. And I actually prefer that interpretation to like ship men to the moon kind of literal minded interpretation of the book. I'm completely with you on that. And I think it would be positive. That's why I included that chapter about violence, which is my kind of curveball chapter that throws a lot of people off. Why do you have this chapter in there? Well, because it's true. And so we need to just kind of take into account what it means that women start to embody some of these traits that we have completely assumed from ages on in the evolutionary story we tell ourselves are masculine traits involving testosterone. And I think it's the reason we think men will remain dominant forever, even if we don't say that or admit it. And so it was important for me to like scramble our kind of notions of even that fundamental thing up a little bit. Well, this has been great. Thank you for making the time to speak with us. Uh, So thank you, Hannah Rosen, for Writer's Talk. I'm Krista Benson, and keep writing. Thank you so much. And now a sneak peek to next week's interview with Lauren Oliver, interviewed by guest host, OSU student Aaron Riley Sanders. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Aaron Riley Sanders. Lauren Oliver is a best-selling author of Books for Children, She broke into the writing scene in 2010 with Before I Fall, featuring a teenage girl who relives the day she dies seven times. Oliver has since followed up with Delirium and Pandemonium, the first two books in a popular dystopian trilogy for teens. In 2011, Oliver published Liesl and Poe, her first middle-grade fantasy book. Now she has come up with an exciting new book for ages 8 to 12 called The Spindlers. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Lauren Oliver. Thank you for having me. Thinking about the bigger picture, what's your writing process like? Actually, I have for every project a folder, and then I have about 17 word documents. And one of them is the working manuscript. Others are earlier versions or character sketches or timeline. I have mm-hmm. a lot of timeline issues often in books. Geography, notes... And then there's just kind of a working outline, and then there's the document that I'm writing in. In terms of how I proceed, it starts with the combination idea and voice. And I can't proceed if I just have an idea and and no narrator speaking it to me, just as I've never basically tried to craft a story just around a character. I need to have both elements at Mm -hmm. the same time. And I always write about 15,000 words to see whether the book starts living. 
to see whether it starts speaking to me and carrying me in certain directions or whether I'm still forcing it. And usually at that point I pause and one of two things will have happened. Either I feel that yes, this book can continue, but I need to really understand what it's about. Mm -hmm. How am I going to shape it? What are the central conflicts? So I stop and then I force myself to outline before re-engaging with the writing. Or I feel like it was an idea, but ultimately it's not going to be successful or it's not the right time for me to write it. So I put it aside. And then in terms of my writing process on a day-to-day basis, I write a thousand words a day, day in, day out, every day, 365 days a year. What inspires you? There are so many answers to that question. First of all, I'm inspired by pretty much everything. I mean, I think imagination and imaginative capacity is kind of like a muscle and it grows the more that you work it. And I'm inspired by music and by art, definitely inspired by everything I read. I think it's really critical in order to be a writer. You have to be a very, very good and avid reader. I've learned everything from every book I've read, from the books that I love and have inspired me to books that I feel have been unsuccessful in one way or another. And then in terms of thematically, I'm inspired essentially by by people who feel broken or lost or lonely coming to feel whole and home and loved. I mean, that's kind of what is at the heart of many of my stories. What made you decide to write about death? Well, you know, there's only like two big subjects in life. I feel like death and love. Actually, that's kind of a quote cribbed from an essay I read a long time ago, or maybe it was a short story by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, where he said all great books are about either love or death. And I Mm -hmm. kind of think that's true. On the other hand, it's funny because there's death in almost all of my books, so I wouldn't be able to even say which one she was talking about, but I am writing about life. I mean, no matter what Mm -hmm. the construct of the story is, I'm trying to write about the experience of what it is to be alive. Thank you, Lauren Oliver. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to answer all of our questions about writing. From The Ohio State University, this is Erin Riley Sanders for writer's talk. So tune in next week for the entire interview with Lauren Oliver by OSU student Aaron Riley Sanders. Don't forget that there's still time one day to submit your story to the writer's talk Barnes and Noble, the Ohio State University Years End Writing Competition. More information is available at www.writerstalk.org. But whatever you're writing, you can probably find a way to fit it into this year's theme of year-ending or ending stories, holiday stories. It's a pretty open ball game. So go ahead, go to www.writerstalk.org and compete for many wonderful prizes. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. <laughs>